Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. And first at 5.30, more than 20 years have passed with few answers about a series of murders in the Connecticut River Valley. People in that area suspect it was the work of a serial killer. In the late 1970s and through the 80s, several women disappeared around the Claremont area and in nearby Vermont. The Attorney General's office says it still can't be certain how many cases are related. Today, a state lawmaker tried drawing new attention to it all. Heather Hamill live now, and Heather, this attempt didn't get much traction. Well, that's true, Jean, because Representative Steve Lindsay, who introduced the bill, recommended killing it as well. No one other than Lindsay even spoke for or against it, and in the end, his unusual way of going about this was questioned by committee members. In the late 70s and 1980s, the crime shook the very core of the Connecticut River Valley. At least seven women stabbed and murdered. In 2011, still no arrests. Keen Representative Steve Lindsay says he wants answers and justice. And women uh, without too many ties, uh, women that were easy, easily forgotten. I'd like to reignite uh, interest in the case and I'd like to uh, bring some resolution. Lindsay introduced a bill that would give the state's cold case unit $200,000 to exhume the victims of the so-called Connecticut River Valley killer and perform DNA testing. Hello and welcome to episode 197 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, I am very lucky to be joined by a survivor of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, and that is one Jane Borowski. Very nice to have you on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me and allowing me to share my story. Yes, your story is something that is a little different than what we do normally on this show, but we do always like to keep our victims and unsolved cases on the forefront. And since you are a victim of this case, I would really be interested in knowing what it is that impacted, or basically how this all started in your life. And if you could just start from, uh, you know, how you got involved, unfortunately... And we'll go from there. Yeah, I um, I was 22. It was 1988. And uh, I went to a fair. Uh, I live in a small community in New Hampshire, um, Swansea, Winchester, Hinsdale, that area. Um, and uh, I went to a fair that night, uh, the county fair, Cheshire County Fair. It's, it's a fair that every year they have it in... People just congregate there and meet up with different people they know. And and it's a, a family fun fair. And uh, so I went to the fair. And uh, 
Walked around, ran into a bunch of people I knew, did a little bit of chit-chat here, chit-chat there. And then uh, I was uh, leaving the fair. It was 11-ish, 11.30-ish. It was hot. That summer was brutally hot and humid. Um, I was seven months pregnant uh, with my daughter. And uh, I started going home and um i was i was driving through swansea on a main road um now this this town has virtually no major crime whatsoever and uh i knew there was a store right on route 10 that it was closed but i knew it had a vending machine outside a soda vending machine so i pulled in and parked in front of the the soda machine and uh, got some change out and went and got a soda and I'm in my car and I'm I'm drinking my soda getting ready to leave and this uh Jeep Wagoneer pulled up beside me on my passenger side. I didn't think anything of it. There's a payphone sitting there, there's a soda machine sitting there. I, I really didn't think anything of it. Um and then he walked around the back side of my car and uh came over to my my driver's side door and and asked me if the phone worked and right as he did that he opened my door and and tried to take me out of my car uh and we struggled i i i fought quite a bit i fought so much that somehow i was a i i somehow i my Feet came up. I was kicking him, and I smashed my windshield when I when I kicked him. And um, after struggling and fighting and screaming, uh, he took a knife out and said, "Maybe this will persuade you persuade you to get out of the car." And I did. It did, and I got out of the car. And we're standing by my car, and you know, at first I was scared and. And he was just acting so calm and, but yet acting weird. Cause all of a sudden he was like, um, you beat up my girlfriend and isn't this a Massachusetts car? So I'm like thinking, okay, this guy is like out there somewhere and he's confusing me with somebody else. And so I said, no, no, this is a New Hampshire car. And he walked around the back side of my car to look at my plates and um, started walking back to his vehicle. And I was like, what is this guy doing? I didn't feel threatened at that time. I just felt like he confused me with somebody else. And then I realized, you know what? I got a smashed windshield. <laughs> So I said these words I will regret for the rest of my life. I said, hey, a-hole, what about my windshield? As he was walking back to his vehicle. And uh, he turned around and came back to me and put a knife up against my neck. And we stood there for know, a few seconds. I And, like, I had no idea what this guy this guy was capable of doing. I, I, I didn't, I mean, you got to remember this is back before internet, before social media. 
I had no idea that there were serial killers lurk in the state of New Hampshire and Vermont. So I knew nothing about that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had any awareness that there was such a thing going on, that women were being killed, and if that even was something that they had recognized. No, I didn't. And that was just not the case. Yeah, I mean, wow. I was 22. You know, I, I there, again, there was no internet or social media back then, so I, I didn't know anything about these cases. And um, I saw a car starting to drive by. And uh, I knew the only way I was going to get out of that situation is I, I needed to run to the road and scream. And so I took off. I started running towards the road and screaming, and the car just drove right by. And he tackled me down just like a football player right on the pavement. And before I knew it, I was on my back, and he was on top of me and just stabbed, just started stabbing me. and. um I ultimately was stabbed 27 times. I had a lot of defensive stab wounds in my hands because I was trying to protect my baby. Um, he did cut my juggler. Um, I, I ended up having two collapsed lungs. He cut my tendon in my hand, a tendon in my knee, uh, lacerated a piece of my liver. I had a piece of my liver removed. But he just, um, he was on top of me and I just couldn't, it was almost like an outer body experience. I couldn't believe this was happening. This guy was just stabbing the crap out of me. And uh, all of a sudden he just stopped and got up and walked. He, he was walking away. He wasn't running. He was walking. And I was laying there thinking very, very casually, like it was. Like casually. I don't know. It was, he was so calm. He was so calm throughout the whole thing. It's like he never got mad, but never showed emotion. Um, you know, he did want me to go with him at first. Yeah. Um, it was very evident that he wanted me to go with him to begin with. And, and I wasn't going to. I, I was fighting him pretty bad about that. But, um, yeah. This is all going on outside of the store? Yep, yep. This By your car? Yeah. In the parking lot, and what? And then you said it was late, and this was like close to like midnight. You said, yeah. So it would have been not busy. No, I no. guess. So, I mean, no. so there was no no witnesses or anything other than you. Yeah, that must have been obviously the scariest thing to ever uh, happen. Um, now you said at first you weren't. I don't know. I mean, you you kind of made it sound like you weren't too scared of him at first, and then. Once we got out of the car and he started talking about me beating up his girlfriend and I had Massachusetts plates on my car, which I didn't. Um, yeah, I was I, I didn't feel threatened anymore. I, I thought maybe this guy was just confusing me with somebody else. Once he starts going crazy talk like that where he's referencing fighting your his girlfriend yeah. having different plates where you'd then say, no, I have New Hampshire plates. And, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, you got to be like, this guy's lost his freaking mind. Yeah, that's exactly what not, I was thinking. This guy is. <laughs> not he's going to stab me a billion, uh, 27 times, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, so like you said, most of your wounds were, or a lot of your wounds were defensive. Yeah. But you had two collapsed lungs and a sliced jugular vein. How in the world 
were you able to do what you did next? And what is it that you did next? Well, when I when I heard him walk away, I I obviously didn't know where he was. I was laying on the ground still. And uh I somehow got up on my hands and knees to get up and um his I heard his vehicle start driving like start driving by me and I looked up and he just drove right by me didn't speed off or anything he just drove right by me and looked right down at me and I looked right at him and um he he just drove off so I eventually got up and got to my car uh, I was bleeding pretty bad I could hear the blood just gushing out of me and I got in my car and uh I knew my friend lived about two miles down the road on that main road. So I, I said, okay, I got to get help. I've, I've got to get to his house. He can get me help. So I pulled out and I started driving towards my friend's house. And before I know it, I'm right behind him. I'm like, oh my God, there he is. He's right in front of me. And I was so scared. I was like, he's going to see where I pull in. I, I was terrified of that. And, um, so uh, my friend's house came and I pulled into my friend's house, his driveway, and he, the monster just kept driving, driving along. And so when I got to the house, um, my friend came to the door, he came to his screen door and I just, I told him somebody just, uh, stabbed the crap out of me and I needed help. And I ended up collapsing on his stairs and, and that's when the police came and the rescue came and all that. So basically you feel like adrenaline got you and, and the survivor instinct of you keeping yeah. your baby alive is probably what drove you to. Oh, I, I'm a miles. true believer. I would not be alive if I wasn't pregnant. True believer of that. She gave me the strength and uh, she wanted to survive, which gave me the strength to, to survive. You were fighting for two people. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I guess that's, if you think about it and you think about this particular um, perpetrator, you're the only survivor. Yeah. So that. But I didn't know that for two weeks. I was in the hospital for two weeks and. Uh, yeah. What happened after that? I read it in the paper. Okay. I read it in the paper. So the police didn't inform you that there were, did they know? Were the police aware? Yes. Okay. Okay. So they were quick to yeah. put two and two together. Yeah. Now, yeah. I've read that you were able to get some of the license plate. Yeah they they had they had me go to a, um, a criminal profiler, uh, John Philpin. He was uh, really involved with all the cases, um, so he hypnotized me to try to get you know some kind of license plate um i i guess while i was hypnotized um the license plate was really dirty so i really had a hard time um getting anything off it i i believe some of the numbers were like 336 or 226 or something like that um i really don't think it's reliable um right because it was so dirty because I don't remember seeing the license plate that night. Um, I my, my body obviously went into shock, and I was just focusing on getting help. 
So I, I really didn't. So this is a very interesting situation that you find yourself in at that point in time where you're pregnant and your baby survives. My baby survived. I actually carried her full term until uh, for two months after. Amazingly. That is amazing. And were you able to, I mean, were you recovered by the time you were giving birth? I mean, that must have been just another traumatic experience on top of, uh, you know, everything. Yeah, I I was, I was in the hospital for a few weeks. Um, Okay. I was in ICU for five days. I was on a ventilator because obviously I had two collapsed lungs and and everything else. I, I went into surgery immediately that night of my attack and they removed a piece of my liver. And I remember having tubes in my sides for the, for the, um, ventilator for my, um, collapsed lungs. And, uh, yeah, I was in pretty bad shape. They didn't think I was going to survive even in the hospital. They didn't think I was going to survive. So I was in, I was in ICU for uh, about five days and then I went into a regular room. And this whole time I had a, a security, I had a, a police officer outside my door. Um, so everybody that went in and out, they, I had to, there was only immediate family allowed that, in to see me. That had to be a little comforting. It was once I realized, yeah, because I didn't realize anything for like five days. And then when I went into the, um, my regular room, um, my family kind of sheltered me from all the news media and the newspapers and all that. So I really didn't know what was going on on the outside world. I just knew what was going on in the hospital. And I knew there was a, a police officer at my door all the time. And uh, one one day my, my mother was at the hospital and we were sitting. This was when I was in my regular room. And I was like... Dennis, my husband, I said, why is Dennis so determined for me not to watch the news or or look at the newspapers or anything? Because every time they brought newspapers in, he'd take the newspaper. And um, my mother was like, you're all over the news. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm all over the news? She's like, oh, you're all over CNN. You're on WMUR Channel 9 News in, Ma- in New Hampshire. You're in Mass on all the news channels in Mass. Um, you're in the newspapers everywhere. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That didn't bother me. It, what bothered me was as soon as I found out that my name was everywhere. And I was like, this guy has not been caught yet. And my name is everywhere. Now, they don't do that today. Now, the victims' names are not revealed at all in the news or the newspaper or anything like that. But back then it was, and it was like, do they even realize how much danger they put me in? So I am. As a journalist, (laughs) that is so frustrating. Isn't it? Never, never, ever, ever do that. No. I mean, uh, that's so, I'm so sorry that you had to be, because that puts, that's like a whole nother added stress to your life that you've already you're dealing with so much to begin with, and now you've get outed in the newspaper as being one of, being the victim that survived. Yeah, I mean, how is that not gonna? Yeah, just that's just uh, foolishness, in my opinion, and yeah. not thinking things through. But 
times have changed. They have. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. That kind of brings me to the point where physically you're stabbed 27 times. How how long was it before you felt like, I mean, did you fully recover? I did physically. You know, I, it took me about a month to fully recover. Um, you know, my, my tendon in my hand and my tendon in, in my knee took quite a while to, to recover. I had to do a lot of physical therapy and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, physically, yeah. I, I recovered Men- yeah, men- good. mentally. Mentally, not so much. No, you know, while I was in the hospital, when a, a nurse came in with a newspaper, and that's when I read that uh, they were connecting me with the Connecticut River Valley killings, and uh, that really did a job on me mentally. And when the detectives came to the hospital to see me, they came quite a few times to interview me and stuff. And you know, I was like, "Is this true?" And you know, they were like, yeah, yeah. And every day they came to the hospital, I was like, so you, you find him yet? You catch him yet? Because I'm thinking in my mind, they're going to find out who this is and catch him and arrest him. And I, I didn't have to, you know, have to worry about it anymore. But when the day the day that came that I was being released, I, I said to them, okay, is this gentleman outside my door coming to my house to protect me? And um Obviously not. They were like, no, no. Um, but we're going to have police. Um, uh, the police in your town will do drive-bys around by your house. And I, I was just like, are you kidding me? This is just crazy. So it was like shortly, like right after I got home, my nightmare started. Um, my nightmares got really bad. And, and uh, yeah, mentally I was, I was... I was a mess. I was a mess. And then when I had my daughter, you know, I was so much stuff goes through my mind. It's like, I don't even know how to protect myself. How am I going to protect my daughter? And you know, it's like, it was just, uh, it was a very, very difficult time in my life. Very, very difficult. And, you know, it's every week that went by, I kept thinking, they're going to find him. They're going to catch him. They're going to figure out who this was. And, um, you know, every week came by and, and no, they, they never, they never found him, never arrested him, never identified him, anything, you know, to this day, it's still unsolved. All of them are. That is where I was going next. And that was how this case has remained unsolved when we have a survivor like you and you were able to get a composite sketch or yeah i did a, i did a composite how long after you were attacked did they actually ask you for your information about what you saw who you thought this guy did, or was that during the hypnot uh when you were hypnotized cuz i i know that like you see it yeah. on tv and they come into the hospital and they God, let me talk to the victim. And they're like, we can't do that, you know, blah, 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 blah. But they always seem to do that. So, well, it's interesting because um, when I, when they did the composite, I was still in ICU and I was still on a, a ventilator. So they came in oh. with this box and it had like different films of eyes and nose and, and, you know, the face. 
the face shape and the hair and and I laid in bed and I blinked. Identicate. Oh my like, gosh. Are these the eyes? And I blink and show me something else and I blink once or blink twice. Once for yes, twice for no and and you know, that was when it was like after I got out of the hospital, I kinda of wondered why they did that. But then I'm thinking, Oh my god, they didn't even think I was gonna survive. So they had to get some kind of composite out there in case I didn't survive. So I wasn't able to Fair Yeah. Fair enough, yeah. fair enough. But um as soon as I had the ventilator out and I was in my regular room, they came up pretty regularly to interview me and to find out exactly what happened that night cuz they they didn't know exactly what happened that night because I was I was on a ventilator and I couldn't speak and I was I was completely out of it. I mean, I don't remember anything those those 5 days, but um yeah, so it was shortly after that when I was in my regular room is when they, they came in and started getting the real story and real information about exactly what happened. Now, you mentioned when you left the, you know, you got home, the nightmares began. And PTSD is obviously something that you had to deal with and deal with probably still to this day, I'm sure. Uh, it doesn't just go away, unfortunately. Uh, can you? explain a little bit about uh, how you've been able to deal with that? Well, I did not realize I had PTSD until 2010. It was 20 years after my attack. It's fair to say, though, you, the diagnosis back in 1988 probably wouldn't have been the same yeah. as it was. It's, psychology came a little bit It's so away, different you know. now. It's like now when victims um, or survivors are in you know, have some kind of trauma or, or whatever and and say they're in the hospital, the first thing they do is they offer them counseling before they leave. They give them some kind of counseling tools before they leave. Back then, they didn't do that. It was like, okay, physically, you're healed. You're being discharged. Have a nice life. I hope you, you know, stay safe or whatever. And, and that was pretty much what the case was with me. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to live a normal life as, as much as I could. I tried to, uh, move, move forward. I tried to not allow it to control my life. Um, but the reality is it did. It, it, uh, I made a lot of bad choices because of the state of mind I was in for so many years. And, um, you know, I, I ended up becoming a real serious compulsive gambler. Gambling for me, it, it was my, it was my escape from the reality of what happened to me. It was, it was the only thing I could think of to, I could go and I could gamble and I didn't have to think about it anymore. And, um, because of that, I, I made a lot of bad choices in my life. And uh, in 2010, um, I hit rock bottom and I went to jail because I did, uh, I stole from an organization that I, I loved very much. I was, I was a part of it for 25 years and uh, I ended up going to jail for it. But I, I never used my attack as an excuse. I've always taken full responsibility for, for uh, my bad choices. 
that I made. But I was also court ordered to go to counseling for my gambling. And uh, it was while I was in, in counseling for my gambling about two months later, I had an excellent counselor. She was so, she was so awesome. I had told her about my attack about two months after. And she was like, this happened to you? Oh my God. And, you know, we started talking about it more. And she's like, I want to clinically diagnose you with PTSD. And I was like, PTSD is for like veterans that have fought overseas, you know, and in wars. And, and she's like, no, I'm, so she went over the computer and she printed me out a bunch of uh, symptoms of PTSD. And uh, she gave me the paper and she said, you go home, you read this. And then you come back next week and you tell me what you think. And I've been in my pocketbook for a couple of days and I happen to take it out and I'm I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, I have PTSD. I had every single one of those fit symptoms. Every single one of those symptoms affected my life in such a negative way. And uh, so I went back. I said, okay, I have PTSD. Now what? And she said, now we start healing you. And that's what we did. Uh, it took seven years. Um, it's still, I still heal every day. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a process. But for the first seven years, it was like I did some real good, intense uh, counseling. Uh, I, we addressed every single one of my symptoms and, and, you know, made me see how it affected my life in a negative way and how I can turn it around to be positive. And, um, after seven years, I was just like, wow, I've, I've, uh, I now realize I didn't live a normal life. <laughs> and for the first 20 years after my attack, that was just a, that was just a facade that I was living. Um, but now I live a very happy, normal life. I, I, I've become a person I've always wanted to be. Um, you know, I wake up every morning, I'm going to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And that's what I strive to do. And, uh, that's one of the reasons why I want to tell my story. You know, I want to, I want people to say, you know, wow, I've gone through something traumatic and I've never been able to talk about it, but I'm listening to Jane and I, I want to talk about it now. I want to, you know, heal, um, you know, if I help that one person, that's, that's the whole, that, that's my whole purpose of doing this podcast, Invisible Tears. It's, uh, I just want to help that one person. Yeah, I, I, you kind of leave me without words. I'm um, sorry. No, no. I kind of threw I, everything at you. No, I, yeah. I've, no, it's, it's, I'm a huge, huge proponent of therapy. I've been in therapy since I was 10, so, um, you know, I was lucky enough to have that uh, mom who was there to say, you know, you aren't, you probably should go see somebody. And I remember having the epiphany being like, I'm not talking to some, yeah, I don't need to do that. You know, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with me. And you didn't want to show weakness. Like, no, you know, I was 10 years old. I was a tough little boy. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the yeah. next night I had the same issues, like not being able to sleep and the anxiety. And I'm like, 
yeah, you're right. <laughs> I gotta, I, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, once you come, once you come to that sort of, uh, you know, realization, it doesn't matter if you're young, you're old, or you know, whatever age you are. It's just like it opens up your whole world to see a, a difference that you have never seen before. I mean, it's a whole new world, as they say. <laughs> Not to sound cliche, but it's true. And what you went through, my goodness. I mean, your therapist. What did your therapist, um, in regards to like your decision making? You said you don't blame your actions for you know what you did on your attack, but the underlying factor is it did play a role in. Oh, exactly. I, and I, I've always, I've always said, you know, I take full responsibility for my bad choices. But my counselor did, uh, she did say, you know, you can't help but, but notice it and realize that it was a, my bad choices were a direct result of my attack and, and the lack of counseling or no counseling I, I didn't receive for 20 years. So, yeah, I mean, even though I do take responsibility, if I, I kind of wonder, you know, if I wasn't attacked, would I have made those bad choices in my life? Would I have uh, began gambling, my gambling addiction? Um, probably not. Probably not. Yeah, you, you know, you see a lot of people I mean, that cover it up with alcohol and drugs and, you know, a variety of other things, other addictions. You know, there's just a myriad of issues that you can get yourself involved with if you're not addressing uh, you know, not to make it like a sports cliche, but you know, if you're, if you're a runner and your left foot's hurt and you start then favoring your right foot, guess what? Your right foot ends up hurting. And so it's just a catch 22 and without receiving counseling. I mean, I can't even fathom what you went through for 20 years of your life without receiving the appropriate counseling that you deserved as a victim um yeah i just feel so bad for you in that regard like that's just such a such a uh drop of the ball by uh health health providers you know just people who should be able to say hey you know you should probably get some counseling too if they're gonna make you do it for gambling addiction you know, again, times were different, but still, when I made... Times were different, but I hit a lot of things. Okay. I hit a lot of That's... things. You know, I, I cried a million tears in silence. I, I never showed anybody what I was really going through in my head. Um, Hence, invisible tears. You know, I, I attempted... Yes. I, I attempted suicide twice. Oh, no. I, I went through such depression, but... My depression, I, I, I was going through the depression, like, in my bedroom, in my privacy of my bedroom. But once I walked out that door, I, I had to put on this. For some reason, I felt like I couldn't show weakness. I had to be strong. So once I walked out that door, I was like, okay, I'm not going to show how I'm feeling today. I'm just going to try to, you know, move on and, and do a normal life, you know, and, and uh my life was nothing but normal. Oh, now, you know, once once I was sitting in that jail cell and I realized, holy crap, 
my life is messed up and I need to do something to, uh, I need to do something to change it. And, uh, that's what I did. You know, um, I didn't have much hope while I was in jail, but once I got my counseling, I have a lot of hope now. You know, my life is so good. I have a granddaughter. My daughter survived and she blessed me with the most beautiful granddaughter. She's going to be nine. And, um, no, I, I'm just, I'm so, uh, I'm so blessed and so thankful for where my life is today. But I don't know that my life would be like this today if I hadn't gone through all those learning, all the, the learning bad choices, you know, the bad choices I made, I had to learn from. And so, you know, maybe that turned me into the person I am today and my life, the way my life is today. That's a totally fair assessment. I think that um, the decisions that we make along the way in our lives do dictate the people, you know, we become good choices and bad. We've all made them. You know, it's, it, it's some at different levels. Some it, That's the one thing, you know, there's no therapy that fits one person. It's just, or I mean, that fits all people. It's everybody's different. You know, you got to approach things differently. I mean, your story is obviously completely different than anybody else's story who goes into counseling. And I, I just think it's such an important part of our culture that has been stigmatized that people don't turn to counseling for help. And it's such a sad state of affairs in my opinion, because it's not a a sign of weakness at all. It's actually a sign of courage and a sign of bravery because you're willing to explore the inner depths of you. And there's nothing more exactly. You know, how many people have you run into since you've been out of therapy that you're just like, you need therapy and you and you're in your mind, <laughs> you don't say it because you know better, but you know, how many people, Jane, how many? It's been a few. There's been a few. <laughs> it may, it, again, it, yeah. it opens your eyes and you, you really see things from a new perspective and, um, yeah, I'm so happy that you got that counseling that you did. During that counseling, did you guys discuss the case at all that that you were involved with? Somewhat. We talked a lot about him. Okay. Um, at first, I didn't want to because I just, um, I felt too much attention was put on him with everything. So I, I really didn't want to talk about him much. And, and she's like, he did this to you, you know? <laughs> You got to talk to talk about him. And um, that's when I realized how much anger I had inside me with him and and about him. And it it was. uh, I knew I had a lot of anger inside me, but I didn't realize how much until we started to talk about him and and all that stuff. So it was like. um, now I can talk about him, but I don't talk about him a lot. It's like, you know, I, I don't think he's human. <laughs> I, I, I refer to him as evil or a monster. Um, do I? He's definitely not a human being as far as I'm concerned. Um, but 
we also talked about, as far as the cases are concerned, one of the things I had to deal with a lot, too, was um, survival guilt. Survival guilt is a very real thing. And I didn't realize how much it was affecting me until we really started talking about it. Because it was like, uh, you know, these seven women were killed and I survived. I can't even, Im and what was going through my mind was, I can't imagine how that, their families must feel about me. Like, they must feel like, she survived, why couldn't our loved ones survive, you know? And, that, you know, it wasn't till a few years after I, I realized that these families were very grateful that I survived. And um, it, it was, uh, it was eye-opening. Um, survival guilt is so real, and it, it just, it did eat at me a lot. And we talked about that a lot. It, it was, uh, it was hard. It was hard getting past that. I was going to ask you about that, but I didn't really want to open that can of worms earlier when you started, when I mentioned that you were the only survivor and, and I just didn't want to put that on you because of all the other stuff that you have to go through as well. So explain to me a little bit about how you've been able to overcome that survivor's guilt. I mean, I know we should, that's probably something you still deal with daily. I don't as much. The way I look at it is I survive for a reason. And, um, you know, I'm a true believer. Everything happens for a reason in our lives. And I survived um, because now I can be these women's voice. These women don't have a voice anymore because they were so brutally murdered and, and it, it was taken away from them. I can be their voice now and, and, and I can relate to what they went through and, and not a lot of people can do that. And, you know, I, I don't feel the guilt anymore. I feel like, um, instead of, uh, thinking so negative about it now, I think more positive. What can I do positive to, um, you know, I survived. These women didn't. What can I do positive? And I can tell their stories. You know, and that's what I want to do. I want to more focus. If you look up these women online, mm -hmm. all you see is um, the what they, that they were murdered. You know what they went through. They were murdered, but you don't know that most of them have brothers and sisters. Um, what their interests were. They had lives before they they were so brutally taken away, and. Um, I'm going to be able to be their voice to tell their stories and to talk about them in their real lives, not just about what happened to them. And, and I'm thankful for that. That's amazing. And that's an, a, a really interesting perspective to have, a uh, great perspective to have on, on this case, especially being in the position that you're in. Uh, it's a, a way to honor them, uh, and it's a way to um keep keep the story going because you know once the yeah. media stops following stories it kind of you know that's when they become cold cases and yeah. you know what do you do when the media stops following your case and i mean you probably had how long did the media follow your case before they trailed off and probably about a year 
give or take about a year. I mean, for most people, that's pretty. That's a that's a long time. But the fact that the case didn't get ever get solved, it should still be something that is on the front and center of all these different towns where these murders took place. And we're not talking. Can you explain a little bit to the listener about how small of an area where these bodies were found? Well, Unity is a very small town. Um, I think they might have 2,000 residents in Unity. Um, a lot of back roads, dirt roads, very isolated. Uh, um, Claremont is a small community. Um, you know, these are, they're very small communities, um, especially back in the 80s. They didn't have the strip malls. They didn't have the Walmarts. They didn't have all these these big box stores and, um, you know, all the, the big uh, franchise restaurants or anything like that. They were very, very small communities. Um, they've obviously grown over the years. But, um, you know, where these women were found, it was um, dirt road, back roads, uh, very isolated. Um you know, all, all except for Linda Moore and uh, Barbara Agnew. Um, well, Barbara Agnew's body was found in Kellyville, and that was a very uh, small, small community, small town. Um, she was found in the woods. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, very isolated, very isolated areas. Easy to be a serial killer, I guess, is uh, a bad way of putting it, but not a lot of people out there to tell you or catch you doing what you're doing if you're disposing of people's remains in these completely isolated areas but the fact that these towns are so small one is left to believe that the killer has to be somebody that was somebody local yeah um we went up uh me and my team went up um to the claremont area to where most of the bodies were found um, about a couple of months ago, I, first time I've been up there to actually see where their bodies were found. And, uh, it was, uh, to me, he knows the area. He, he knows the area very well. Um, um, like two of the victims, like Elizabeth Critchley and Eva Morse, their bodies were found 500 feet apart. But five years apart. So he revisited that area. For sure. Um, you know, so he, he's a lot of these places. We had a hard time finding these roads and where these bodies were found. So he knew the area because he where where he put them. It, it was it was very isolated. Very, very isolated. There's just no. So basically what you're saying is there's no way that. Any random Joe is just going to end up where he ended up putting those bodies. He had to know where he was going. Yeah, no. Yeah, he had a plan before he, he even found the victims. Like, he, like yeah. he knew exactly where he was going with those people. Yep, it, it was so evident. You mentioned your team. So what does your team uh, in, consist of? And uh, are you guys investigating the, the, the crime? Well, well, let's start with when we, we started invisible tears um let's hear it my we were uh we were in lockdown <laughs> with the um pandemic and me and my daughter were listening to some podcasts and uh she's like oh let's punch up your name 
<laughs> so she punched up my name and all of a sudden we we're hearing podcasts about my my attack. I was like, oh, listen to that. And she's like, oh my God, they're so wrong. And listen to them. They, they, they're, they're just reading off the internet. She's like, that's just, uh, you need to do a podcast. You need to tell your story in your words. And um, I have no technical experience whatsoever with anything. I, I don't even, she's the one that had to do the podcast and put that up. So uh, she's like, um, let's get a hold of Andrew. Drew Bernard, he was a, him and my, uh, his parents are, have been best friends with us for years. And, uh, I actually babysat him when he was, was young, um, him and his siblings. So I got a hold of him and I said, what do you think about helping me do a podcast? Telling my story. Well, he, um, him and his wife, Amanda, they were like, let's do it. And uh, so we just, for the last two years, we've been working on it. And we um, we have Invisible Tears. And uh, they are amazing. He's um, he, he, he's the producer of my podcast. Amanda is my co-host, my life coach. Um, she does all the editing of my podcast. And um, there's me. So it's it's a great team. We've uh, become really close. I trust them. I, I, I can't imagine doing this with anybody but them because they make me feel like um, they make me feel safe and they make me they let me tell my story. And the way they edit and the way they um, allow me to tell my story is just amazing. And uh, I'm grateful for them. Totally grateful for them. That's amazing. And it's it's really amazing that you're you're going back and revisiting the scenes and you know taking that extra step to um dive deeper into this case. And do you feel like it's getting any um close? I mean, I noticed that there were a couple suspects on the internet and uh one in particular yeah so can you explain uh you don't you don't have to go and tell me the name but like is there anybody is there any chance that this guy is the the guy let's get the name out there michael nicolau you punch up my name or you punch up uh connecticut river valley killings and michael nicolau is there um a private investigator contacted me way back in like I think it was 2005 or something like that, told me that she had all this info on this Michael Nicolau guy and felt like he was the Connecticut River Valley killer. And um, I, I I had formed a relationship with her for about two years. And uh, she was super into media attention, like huge media attention. And... um. I very quickly realized that um, everything that she was doing with this whole Michael Nicolau thing was um, for her agenda. It wasn't to uh, solve anything. It was to uh, put her in the limelight. And a lot of things that she was saying was just circumstantial and hearsay. And I started picking up on some stuff. 
And I'm like, well, that's hearsay. And uh, she just felt very strongly that it was Michael Nicolau. And um, after I, I had talked to a couple of other people and a couple of private investigators and um, had them review Michael Nicolau, the detectives in Concord reviewed Michael Nicolau. And it, we've decided it, it wasn't Michael Nicolau. Um, was he a bad man? He was definitely a bad man. I mean, he killed his wife and stepdaughter and possibly his first wife. Um, so, uh, yeah, he was a bad man. But was he the Connecticut River Valley killer? No. A lot of things don't fit with him. Um, this private investigator that brought him to my attention was only finding things that, or, or using things that made him fit into the investigation. He, she never did any elimination, <laughs> I should say. Um, and there was a lot of things to eliminate him, but she never focused on that. She just tried, she'd find something and say, well, you know, he may have been in this area at that time because I found this or, you know, so she always tried to make him fit. But I, I, I really tried to uh, listen to her with an open mind about everything, you know, because over the years I've had so many people come to me, come knocking on my door. I know who this did, who did this to you. I know who the Connecticut River Valley killer is. I've been investigating this for years. It's my brother-in-law or it's my, my old classmate or, you know, different people. So I've heard this, you know, before. So as I'm, uh, as she, when she contacted me, I kind of took everything in, you know, with an open mind because, you know, of all the others that have come forward. But, um, yeah, she kind of took it and ran with it and put it all over the media. And uh, I wish she didn't. And I wish I had not associated with her. But I did. And I can't change it. And uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is these are still unsolved. Yes. You know. Bottom line. The, bottom line. And nobody's ever been arrested. Nobody's ever... Uh, gone to jail, and uh, these poor families have never seen justice. I mean, some of these family members are passing away now, um, like Bernice Cornemash. Her parents just passed away the past couple of years. And it's sad because now they, they have no answers. Um, I believe the the detectives in the state police could have done more. Um, I believe uh, these are solvable cases. I think they've had a lot of missed opportunities. Um, <laughs> I, 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 sometimes I, I, I lose faith in them. Um, like a couple of years ago, they called me up and said, you know, we got fingerprints off your car. Can you come in and be re-fingerprinted? Because when they lifted fingerprints off my car, everybody that had any contact with my car way back then, right after my attack came in and got fingerprinted. And two years ago, they were like, can we re-fingerprint you? We want to just eliminate a couple of more prints. And I said, yeah, I'll come in and be re-fingerprinted. And so he was like, all right, well, we'll contact you in two weeks, give you a good time and place to go. And, you know, we talked about where to where I would go and stuff. And 
Yeah, that's almost what two and a half years, and I still haven't heard back from him. Oh. So I don't, I don't know if maybe they don't have fingerprints. <sighs> I, I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I still haven't heard from them though. Jeez. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of lose faith in them, and I hate it. I hate it. But I think, I think these are solvable cases. Um, I gave them an enormous amount of information. I mean, and and I and I. Like one of the things they've always thought that he had a four wheel drive. He was driving a Jeep Wagoneer that night, a four wheel drive, um, with wood grain siding. I gave the color. You know, I I could not have been more detailed with stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. just uh, there's so much information I had given them, and and I just don't understand why they're not solved. I, I really don't. Do you do you have a contact there at all, or in, with law enforcement in general, or not? No. no. The detec- the main detective that was on my case thirty four years ago, he retired. Okay. Um, I know that there's been a few. There's a cold case unit in Concord, in New Hampshire, and I know there's been quite a few that have been. Um, you know, they go into the cold cases, or or you know. But I know a lot of them had come and gone, too. So I know there's been a lot of fresh eyes on on the cases. But it doesn't seem like anything just comes about. Well, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating. But that's why you're doing your podcast and you're doing interviews with me and other shows and you're keeping the story out there. And, you know, that's the most important thing. And in, in all reality is you've taken the reins of your story and you're now in charge of it and you're not letting the investigation dictate what you know or don't know about this case. And now you have a team that is working yeah. with you that has helped you with this podcast, Invisible Tears, which can be found anywhere you get your podcasts and, you know, highly recommend checking that out. And do you have any like closing thoughts that you would like to leave the listeners with as far as like, okay. Yeah. I'd I'd love to hear them. (laughs) I'm also, I'm also working on another project with Crawl Space Media, uh, Tim and Lance and Jen. We're working on another project called Dark Valley, and that is going to be coming out uh, in the spring. That's going to be a podcast. And I'm super excited about that because they're really going to focus on the investigative part of the Connecticut River Valley murders. Um, and the families and, and they're, they're, it's, I love working with them. And, um, they're also allowing me to tell my story on that podcast. So it's been, I'm so thankful for them too. They're, they're such awesome guys. Yeah. Um, so Dark Valley will be coming out in the spring. And, um, I'm also, I want to bring up, uh, Trish Haynes in in New Hampshire. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but, um, she was murdered and the two people that killed her are still not arrested and it's infuriating. Um, they're doing a, uh, vigil uh, or, um, an event up in, up in Concord, New Hampshire on September 24th. I'm going to be there with her family and her friends and everybody else to try to get these authorities to do something about this. Um, cause it is very evident on who killed her 
And I don't understand why those two people are still walking uh, the face of the earth I, I and not in jail. I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, but yeah, um, invisible tears. Uh, we, um, you can find invisible tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we have a website invisible, uh, slash tears.com. Um, check out the website. We got a lot of, uh, other information on there and, um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So you're, I think I covered you're multi, everything. You're a multimedia <laughs> machine. I see Tim and Lance have, well, <laughs> have gotten into you. Yeah, Tim and Lance. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. But I'm lucky because I don't have to do all that uh, social media stuff. That's Amanda and her daughter. Um, they've been taking care of all that for me, which I'm, I'm so grateful for because I just, I, I'm not very good at that. So, but, um, and I want to just, just, uh, say the names. Let's get this case solved and let's say the names of the, the victims that didn't survive because we haven't really, uh, said their names. But I, I know. And I, and I want, yeah, let's do that. Let's There's hear Kathy Mulligan. There's Elizabeth Critchley. Eva Morse, Ellen Freed, Bernice Cordemarsh, Linda Moore, and Barbara Agnew. Those are the real victims. They're the ones, uh, they're the reasons why I'm doing this. Uh, I want to be their voice. And um, these cases need to be solved. Let's, uh, enough with the missed opportunities. Let's solve these cases. I like it. I like it. I think that you have done an incredible job um, overcoming a lot Thank of uh, a lot of the issues that come along with being a victim, uh, being a survivor of a serial killer, survivor. which is just not something a lot of people can say. And the fact that you're basically you're now a victim's advocate, <laughs> you know, following up on stuff and doing doing things, doing things. Um, you know, appropriately and, you know, following up. And, and I just think it's really great that you've been able to do this and you, you got a team with you and, you know, the dark Valley coming out with Tim and Lance. I mean, you know, they're, they're rock stars and, you know, I've known them for a while. And so, you know, good, good crew to be hooked up with. And uh, I can't imagine that they will do your story wrong and they will uh, be on it as a, I mean, you couldn't have picked a better duo. So, um, I mean, I love I, I love Nick Nick and Nick and the Captain are my are my guys from True Crime Garage. But uh, Tim and Lance are the me- multimedia uh, leaders in the podcast world, and uh, yeah, they're quite uh, quite a force, and they're very funny, and they're very fun, and they can help they can help you um, make a little bit of have a little bit of humor and a little bit of. Uh, dark situation and and i hope that you've been able to get that from them as well and absolutely yeah i can tell by your smile that you know that they 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 do that so uh that's incredible and um thank you so much for sharing your story with us thank you so much for allowing me to share my story It, it means a lot well it means a lot that that you were able to come on and and be open and honest and share a lot of this very personal stuff and i think our listeners will be extremely interested in what you had to say and and i just can't thank you enough thank you thank you 
Thank you so much to Jane Borowski for joining us this week on Who Killed? As you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. You can check out her podcast on any platform, and that is Invisible Tears. And again, she is also going to be doing Dark Valley in the spring with Tim and Lance. So definitely worth checking out. And again, thanks so much for setting that up. I do appreciate that. She is a survivor, and talking to a survivor of a serial killer is definitely an experience. So kudos to her and what she's been able to overcome in her life. So thank you again for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And as you know, you can donate to the show via Venmo at Bill-Huffman-3 or on slowburnmedia.com on the donate button, and that's slow minus the W. So again, thank you to Jane. Thank you to Evergreen. Thank you to Slow Burn and Killer Podcasts. And I hope, as always, you guys stay safe and have a great week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.